Our passage this morning comes from Paul, St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians uh, was written in his confinement in Rome. Uh, and during this period of the two years, his first imprisonment in Rome, uh, the only imprisonment that we have explicit uh, scriptural uh, record for, however, many of the epistles make clear, and the tradition is very clear and quite old, uh, that Paul was imprisoned a second time in Rome, and that did not end well. Uh, however, uh, this uh, epistle was written towards the end of that imprisonment. He is looking to uh, an eventual release. Uh, there are, have been great things that have happened. And one of the, one of the elements, uh, we should say, of Paul's life or, or its connections that were a great aid to him in bringing him through this time of confinement and bounds was the love of the brethren and one of his early works, that the first of his European works uh, in the church at Philippi. We know this church a good deal. We know the first convert to this church, it was Lydia. Uh, we know the uh, circumstances that established a, a certain uh, a beachhead for the church uh, there, after he had cast out the, the, the prophesying spirit out of the slave girl and was therefore imprisoned uh, and later found to be a Roman citizen, so imprisoned unjustly. But in that time, nevertheless, uh, a great work was done amongst the prisoners and particularly amongst the uh, prison guard. Uh, this is the root of that church of Macedonia. Uh, there are other churches in Macedonia, Thessalonica, uh, and, but, but Philippi was one uh, that was always dear to Paul. And uh, interestingly enough, this epistle, unlike many of his epistles, is, is not one of a harsh uh, corrector, even one that is correcting out of love, but one of an encourager. Uh, we should note, and I will note, uh, that Paul writes this not as the apostle of Jesus Christ, but as the servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, there was no question the Philippians knew the apostleship and cherished the apostleship of, Christ, of, of Paul and, and did not at all seek to, uh, to undermine it. And Paul likewise recognizes the importance and the unity of their work in his work and so writes to them as a fellow laborer under the kingship of Christ Jesus. Before I read our passage, and the passage will be, I'll read uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. That makes up uh, the greeting and, and the opening. But the passage this morning will actually focus on verses 3 through 7, his gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will look at his petition and prayer uh, in verses uh, well, 9 through 11 or 8 through 11. But again, before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit that you gave St. Paul. That these words as given might instruct us as well. That they would be our infallible rule for faith and practice 
and that we would uh, see ourselves here uh, with the Philippians and that we would take up that, that great work uh, that they were so forward in. We ask, dear Lord, that you would magnify within our hearts the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we would indeed repent of sin and cling to you in all faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word uh, from the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul and Timothy, the servants, uh, excuse me, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, y'all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Now, as I mentioned before, this this is a joyful epistle. It is often called the epistle of joy. There are hard things in here. There are corrections to be made, or rather, not so much corrections as warnings to be had. Uh, but it's all given in a spirit of love and concern and, and uh, of working with the uh, people at Philippi. And Paul begins his epistle, as he often does, with first the benediction, the grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already noted a little bit of uh, the distinctives here, he includes Timothy with him, but this epistle was in the voice of Paul the whole way through. Uh, he doesn't identify himself as an apostle to lord over their, uh, their uh, deviations from the gospel, but as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't write to the elders and deacons or the bishops and deacons uh, particularly, but rather emphatically to all the saints that are at Philippi, together with the bishops and deacons. They're rather subordinated here, uh, because what he has and the, the, what he has to say, and, and his love and affection, isn't just to the officers of the church, but to the whole church. And, and this, this was not always the case in his epistles, although they all have a, a, an application to the whole church. But very often, the deviation could be found in, in the, the, uh, the eldership, the presbytery, the congregation, and, and that becomes a focus, not here. Uh, this is Paul's dear affection, and we see it 
uh, we see in, in the constant refrain, you all, throughout this first paragraph uh, in verses 3 through 11. Uh, it is, uh, it is a, a broad opening sort of um, affection. We also get a prayer that Paul oftentimes begins his epistles with. And that's not just a rhetorical device. It is a sincerity. And, and we see the sincerity in the w- different ways he prays for each of his congregations. And here we see uh, that almost falling over himself, expressions of, of great joy and appreciation to God for them. And also his petitions come out of that appreciation. He sees what God has done and he prays that God will continue to do so. Uh, so you get the... the the, the uh, verses 5, 6, 7, what, what the uh, Philippians have done, verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, he takes those things that God has done and asks that God would continue to do so and enlarge it and make it full. Uh, and this is proper prayer, uh, but it is also one, uh, particularly here, where we see a great deal of deep affection. Now, what makes Paul so affected to the Philippians and what makes Paul so grateful to God for them is that all the saints at Philippi shared in the gospel work. Now, this we see particularly in verse seven and in verse, uh, verse five and in verse seven. Uh, he, he says, verse three, I make God upon I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time you come into my mind, I go to the Lord in prayer and gratitude, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel until the first day until now. Uh, verse four, uh, not only do I re- pray every time I remember you, but every time I pray, I also bring you up. And, and so this, this gives a fullness to the to, notion to the Philippians how dear they were to him. That they were a cause of his prayer, but also they were a subject to every prayer uh, that he lifted up. He was always remembering them in prayer. It was a constant thing for him. And the basis for it was because they were part of the, they, their fellowship in the gospel. From the very beginning until the present time, and as we shall see in verse 6 and, and, and following, Paul expected it to continue unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, fellowship is one of those things that we can read over. It's, it is for us almost exclusively a religious word, like the word faith. And sometimes we forget that these words are actually regular words. Uh, that Paul uses, and, and we need to understand. Also, by the way, Paul uses this word in the Greek in several places in this passage uh, with slightly different translations generally following out of it. So the, the word partakers of my grace in verse 7, partaking is part of this same context. A fellowship is the same word we would say communion, uh, we might say communication. Uh, it is a mutual sharing. And what Paul is so grateful for them for, it's not just that they were friendly and we, we have little social functions, of what happens in the fellowship hall, but the broader sense of fellowship. 
that they were bearing his burdens and he was bearing their burdens. They were looking at the gospel ministry as not something that was uh, meted out to the, to the elite of the church, but was something for the whole church and the whole church participated in. That Paul was not uh, alone in his apostleship. That Paul's apostleship was such that it had with it a great cloud of witnesses, not only of those that have gone before, but those that were alive at the time, uh, undergirding, supporting, and making his work fruitful. That Paul couldn't, Paul's basic point in this is that, or, or the, the implied point in this, is that Paul couldn't do what he did without them. That part of, ultimately this all comes to the grace of Jesus Christ. This comes from God working that unity of the body of Christ. Uh, But he does so through the means of the brothers and sisters, the saints at Philippi. And in the other churches, this is the one he's writing to. But this is also one that, that we find in other passages of scripture to be very forward in this sort of work. That he wasn't there by himself, doing this, this great, lone, superhuman work. But he was the front man, as it were, uh, for the work, the prayers, the, the resources of a great many people. And bearing one another's burdens is a duty of Christian love. And we see this uh, all over the place in Scripture. Uh, the great commandment of Christ, love you one another. And that love isn't just that emotional affection that we uh, tend to, to restrict love to nowadays. But it is a love that is fruitful. A love that actually uh, seeks the good and the well-being of the one loved. That seeks to lift up that that is loved. And the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 But to do good and to communicate, there's that word again, sometimes translated fellowship, sometimes communion. This is the verbal form. To do good and to communicate, forget not. That is to share. To do good and to share, don't forget. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Or we might look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear one another's burdens, when we see somebody burdened and we relieve that burden in whatever way that we can, we are doing what Christ told us to do when he told us to love one another. To love the brethren. It is part, it is one of the more fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. It is the piety of those that belong to Jesus Christ to love one another. And this the Philippians were were doing. And this loving one another involves the whole church. It involves you and everyone else in the work of the church. Uh, that, you know, sometimes churches get into the to mistake and say, we, we are, we're going to hire a, a pastor and he will be our evangelist and he will be the guy that fills up our church and he will be the guy that preaches us. And then everybody else can just sit back and be spectators. You all know that that's not the case. Uh, We all know that that's not the case. Uh, That that it is a mutual work. Uh, Paul tells the Galatians also in chapter 6, verse 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. 
In other words, be thankful for the teaching and, and, and support that teaching in whatever way you can. Uh, we get in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, uh, this in a more negative sort of sense because uh, the Corinthians were, were chafing. They were actually complaining that Paul didn't take their good uh, and, and were wondering why. And, and we're thinking that maybe that indicated a certain bad conscience in his teaching. And he does to, to get away that. He, he's not going to reap of their financials. Uh, but he recognizes the right of it. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, this is a great thing. If we shall reap your carnal things. Uh, so that, that is a principle. But that's not just to the blessing of, of those that, that minister. It's one also that is to, to bless. Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, where he sends out the disciples into the world, and uh, this is before his resurrection, and he tells them of the dangers and the trials that they will come into contact with. He nevertheless reminds them that to those they bless and that blesses them, there will, that they are part of that work and God will reward it. He that receives you receives me, in Mark 10, verse 40. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And he that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give a drink unto the one of, the, unto one of these little ones a, a cup of cold water only in the name of the disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. In other words... There is a certain sense in which the kindness shown and, and the support shown to wherever the gospel is preached, it is part of that ministry that the Lord will look on and bless. And the Philippians themselves were constant in this. Verse 5, from the first day until now. The, perhaps the particular occasion that uh, Paul is using this letter to write is found in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where we see the character of this letter as a thank you note for particular uh, help that was given. Uh, he says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my afflictions. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only... For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again to my necessity. And not that I desire a gift, but I do desire the fruit that may abound to your account. You see, Paul is commending them for their participation with him in the gospel. Now, this included financial things. We'll find that if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as um, Paul is trying to encourage and move the Corinthians to participate in that, uh, that, that raising of funds for the poor in Jerusalem. He makes mention of the churches of Macedonia. And a leading church there, the Thessalonica, one in Thessalonica was probably more prosperous. But one of the ones that was the most forward was that one in Philippi. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Uh, this was, the Corinthians were a wealthier church. The Philippians were not. But the Philippians were generous. And therefore, 
spiritually more wealthy. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying with us much entreaty, that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering unto the saints. They wanted to be partakers of the diagonal ministries of the apostles. And thus they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They over, went over and above. Paul seems to have been somewhat reticent to take from them. And, and, they, were, uh, and they were, they were uh, a bit forward in pressing that upon them because they wanted to share in that work and that ministry. Uh, in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, uh, we find, because uh, Paul is writing to the Romans there, to, this is before he goes to Rome, and, and he is uh, still calling them to remember the poor in Jerusalem. And he mentions not only those in Macedonia, but those in Achaia. That would be where Corinth was, in the lower part of Greece, the classical part of Greece. Uh, that they were both uh, forward in the generosity of the gospel. Uh, but, but here it's just important to remember that this isn't a new thing for Philipp- the Philipp- Philippians. It isn't a new thing for those at Philippi. Uh, to be generous in the gospel, and he recognizes that, calls it to attention, and is grateful for it. Uh, but the language here, now I should point out, the language here in the first part of the Philippians isn't restricted to uh, maybe whatever support that they sent. They had sent Epaphroditus, they sent a human being to him. Them. Uh, they sent perhaps financial resources of whatever kind there were. Remember, at the end of Acts, Paul is living in his own hired house. That is, he has to pay his rent. Uh, he's not, it's not like modern prisons that, as awful as they may be, they, they're nevertheless not at the prisoner's expense. Uh, this, was, this was at Paul's expense. Uh, and, and the Philippians are there to, to, to bear that burden with him. Uh, perhaps sending things of comfort and also sending their love. Because that is one of the first and foremost things here in Paul. But he knows they love them because they're not just loving in word and in, um, uh, in thought, but they're loving in deed and in truth and meeting those needs. And that is how Paul is assured of their mutual fellowship, their fellowship of love, of prayer, of joy, of concern. Uh, in, in verse 8, we had the phrase, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think your translation says, with the affection of Jesus. Uh, bowels is not something that we think of today as an emotional seat, but for the Greeks it was. And one of high concern. It was, it was, it was that sort of desire or pathos or compassion that actually gave you a gut reaction uh, we do think of it sometimes when we have a gut reaction. That's the same sort of idea in, in that. And Paul is saying that he knew that they shared together that same compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, such fellowship as this. Here's the blessing that Paul sees. Such fellowship is a sure sign of an abiding, eternal grace from the Lord. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that, that which he hath begun a good, but that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now this is 
rightly taken to be one of those proof texts of the perseverance of the saints. That those who truly have tasted the grace of God, who have truly partook of the grace of God, those who are Jesus Christ, those who have been born again, will indeed at the day of Jesus Christ be acquitted in Him. Sometimes said, once saved, always saved, although that doesn't usually get at the idea of, of the Scriptures here. And it, and it tends to, to make it more of a passive thing. But, but we also should look at the context that this assurance is, is expressed. This assurance is expressed by Paul because he's seen a good thing begun in them and knows that if it, because it is truly from the Lord and truly animated by the grace and love of Jesus Christ, that it comes from the Lord and therefore will continue. And what is that good thing? It is the love and the fellowship and the gospel. It is the love that they're showing unto Paul. So this is not a vain work. Paul knows that this isn't just something for the moment because he knows it's not a vain grace. It is motivated not because Paul has guilted them into it. It is motivated by their love of God. And that comes from God. That's why in verse Three, he thanks God. And because it is God's grace that does it, it is not a something that passes away. It is not something that is subject to be stolen by thieves nor destroyed by moth or rust. It is a heavenly treasure and therefore a secure treasure. And note that Paul is thinking on this. It's not their work. It's not his work. I mean, he might in... And in a different context, if he had to protest his propriety and his authority in the Philippian church, uh, remind them that they came to the gospel through his ministrations. He doesn't have to. But even were he, that still would not be the confidence uh, in, in them. Because he knows they were not born of him. They were born of the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord God. And that then becomes the confidence that what is there is real and it will abide. Uh, we see this throughout the book of Philippians, uh, the epistle to the Philippians. In chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, you know, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not because we save ourselves, because he says in verse 13, For it is God which works in you, both to will and do of good, his good pleasure. And so if you are doing of his good pleasure, it's because God is working in you. Peter also speaks in the exact same way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy have begotten us again, He's begun that good work, into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So it's, it's not going to, you're not going to get there and find that it's already been given out. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. You're kept by God. You're kept by God through faith. It's an active keeping of the Lord. It's a, it's a keeping of the Lord that we actively participate in. And yet it is in His hands. So this is one of the great blessings of the fellowship 
and the love of the saints and, and working together in, with the gospel is that it gives us a token of that assurance of faith. You know, our hearts are deceptive. And one of the things the devil does oftentimes is take that uncertainty and doubt and your own sin and use it to accuse you so that you might despair of being one of God's children. And so it's important that we find those fruits of God's grace in our life and cling to them as tokens that we are part of God's people. Now, the ultimate assurance that we are Christ is our trust in Christ. But God doesn't just leave us with that bare trust. He gives us the tokens and the fruit of that trust so that we might reassure our reasoning that we're not just being presumptuous, And Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. But that we will have that which comforts us. And that participating in that love of one another is one of those signs that we are in the grace of Christ. And therefore, it's proper for Paul and right and just for him to pray for them and to have that confidence and have that assurance Uh, As he says in verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think, it's proper for me to think this of you all. Because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are partakers of my grace. I know that the Lord will continue this because you have done it of the Lord. And then that fuels in verses 9, 10, and 11. Note that the prayer and the request that he makes for them is basically an extension of what he already recognizes in them. That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be insincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That is, that you might be doing the Lord's will from that grace, which are by Jesus Christ and to the glory and praise of God. And, and this is the great blessing of the love of the saints. And uh, every saint then becomes one in that participation of the grace of Jesus Christ. Again, how does Paul know this of them? The same way he knows it of himself. Not through himself, but because they are one in Christ Jesus. Even as me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as that both in my bounds and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace, are partakers of grace with me. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Not in my own heart, not in my own bowels, not in my own compassion, but that compassion that we share in Jesus Christ. If you really look at the grammar, and unfortunately the, the translation of with kind of actually gets away from the the unity that we have there, um, because it's not that. It is a unity that Paul is speaking of, uh, that they are one together. They are one body in Christ Jesus. And they are viscerally, not just in affection, not just in name, but because they are sharing one another's burdens. He's praying for them. He's doing that hard work. He's suffering and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they're suffering in their way too. Because at least if we look at Paul's epistle to the second epistle to the Corinthians, we recognize that they do these things uh, to their hardship. That this wasn't easy for the Philippians to do. And yet, nevertheless, they did it. And this is the joy and the beauty that we see in that unity of the gospel and 
the epistle to the Philippians. And we get a couple of practical considerations before we leave here. Uh, if you go back to uh, 2 Corinthians, we see, uh, and that's the same way he brought forth the Philippians, we see a certain bit of how we are to, uh, how we are to, to, when we give. Now, again, remember, this giving is not just financially. Uh, it is also in our time and our prayers, uh, our, our affections, our words. Uh, but, but the hardest part usually is when it comes to hit our pocketbook. And, and Paul gives some directions here. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 11 uh, through uh, 15. He says, Now, therefore, perform the doing of it as that... That as there was a readiness of will, so there may be a performance also of that which you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it accepteth according to that a man hath, and not according to it he has not. For I mean not that, that other men be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that at this time your abundance may supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, and that there may be equality." As it is written, he that hath gathered much hath nothing over, and he that hath gathered little hath no lack. That the idea was not that the Corinthians, and therefore even the Philippians, should impoverish themselves uh, and, and be a burden to a church that, that had much. That was not the case. They were raising money from those in Jerusalem that were sore-pressed. Uh, that, that there is a certain wisdom and a discernment that comes with it. But first and foremost... There's a willingness, a joyfulness, and not otherwise. That if we're not willing to do it, if we're not moved to do it, then we probably should refrain from doing it. In verse 7 of the same chapter, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, says Paul, but by occasion for the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so this advice is expedient for you, who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward as you were a year ago, and then perform the doing of it willingly. So it has to be a willing sort of thing. Uh, as he will say in Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, uh, this, that we all know, Every man according as he purposes in his heart, not otherwise. Every man as he intends, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And that ties into the second part, as you have opportunity and ability. Uh, Paul is a little bit reluctant to take from the Philippians originally, because he thinks, in his way of calculating it, that they're impoverishing themselves. Now, whether they were or not, it doesn't really um, uh, affect things. But Paul is telling us, in 2 Corinthians at least, that we do so according to our, uh, according as the Lord has given. Verse 12, it is accepted according that a man has, and not according to he has not. For I mean not that other men be eased and you burden. We remember 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. How do we know the love of God? That Christ laid down his life for us, so therefore we ought to lay down our lives for their brethren. But that's a grand thing, and we're not often called to it. But you who has this world's goods and see your brother in need and shut up the bowels of compassion against him, how does the love of God dwell in you? 
Uh, note that, that that first part's important, ye that have this world's goods. It's not a blanket statement. Uh, that there is an opportunity. And sometimes, as he mentions unto the Corinthians, you supply their want in your time of abundance, and they will supply your want in their time of abundance. But there's a mutuality to it. Uh, and, and so this should direct us in our giving. And when we look to the work of the Lord, and as we look to our charity. Now, the other thing that comes from this passage, though, and I think also is important, uh, going back to verse 6, and that confidence that we have that the one who began a good work shall bring it to completion. Uh, how do we maintain the assurance of that hope into the day of Christ and judgment? Uh, there's a lot here that Paul says in very few words. Uh, we note that this isn't a passive sort of confidence. It's not one that says, as sometimes the phrase, once saved, always saved, tends to make us do. You know, I made a decision for Christ back in, uh, in my childhood, and so I have, I'm covered for my eternity and my coming into heaven, and I don't have to give that a whole nother thought. You know, there are many people out there that do that. There are many people that don't hardly know nothing, have not opened the Bible, and don't knock in the door of a church, that because they have some sort of little uh, token of their faith, and they are not absolutely denying the faith, they believe when they come into the heavenly glory that, that it will be alright with them. But this is not the way Paul is talking about assurance of salvation to the Philippians. It's not a passive confidence, but one that is alive in the gospel. He sees them alive in the gospel, and he knows that that life is not vain, and it will continue. And that encourages them to continue alive in the gospel. Our assurance is, is, is grounded in gospel life. Now, our assurance particularly, and this is here in this passage, in the sovereignty of God. What God begins, He will bring to fruition. That God doesn't do things by halves. That God saves, and no one will be cast out of His hand. Uh, as Jesus says in John chapter 6, uh, All that the Father has given me, I shall lose none of them. But He doesn't hold them in their hand and then let them go about like brats or undisciplined children. It's, it's, a, um, it's a life that grows in faith. And if it's not growing in faith and obedience and the grace is real, then it's also going to grow in trial and tribulation because as we learn from Hebrews 12, that's how God disciplines us. So it's going to be a life filled with crosses and it's going to be a life filled with obedience. And there and only there can we rest fully assured that God is working in us and we haven't just taken him as sort of an eternal life insurance policy. And therefore, we won't hear as many that say, Lord, Lord, in that day we'll hear, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So it's an encouragement. When we see our life of faith, this is an encouragement that this will not die, that there is no work done vainly in Christ Jesus. But it's also a warning that it is a lively assurance. It is an organic assurance. But it is a truth in the name and in the joy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, we come before you this, this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that your spirit would plant and grow within our hearts that lively affection one to each other that isn't just in word and in thought, but also in the works of our hands and the, uh, the, the active seeking out the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We ask that we would take encouragement from that work, that we would see the blessings that you have in store for those that share in your gospel, and that we would ultimately know that assurance and firm foundation that what we do here will not pass away, but will have fruit unto eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.